What's up, baddie bees? I'm Brianna, mom, wife, serial entrepreneur, and host of the Badass Basic Bitch podcast. Each week, I sit down with a seemingly ordinary woman who's doing extraordinary things, and I get to share her story with you. So let's go. Buckle up as we're going to get real and dive into the shit nobody talks about. Welcome to the Batty Bee Club. And so not only from parent to child dynamic, but from sibling to sibling, partner to partner, we only need to be a good enough in all of those things. And so when people are estranged, it is generally because that relationship was not just imperfect, it was inadequate in, in the ways you needed it to be. So I'm about to blow your mind because there are two sets of data, two places of research around attachment. One is social psychology and one is developmental psychology. Welcome back to another episode of Badass Basic Bitch. On today's episode, we are joined by Eli Harwood, a licensed therapist, author of the book Securely Attached, educator, and creator of Attachment Nerd. Eli has over 17 years of experience in helping people process relational traumas and develop secure attachment. And today, she is going to help us better understand attachment styles and work through some specific scenarios where insecure attachment styles impact our relationships. So Eli, thank you so much for being with us today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. I feel really good about being a basic badass bitch. Really good. (laughs) You are. You are a badass basic bitch, just like the rest of us. I did Um, it in the wrong direction. Yes. (laughs) No, that's how basic you are. (laughs) Before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background and like what led you to this path of being an expert in attachment theory? Great. I'm always um, inclined to start with the personal because I think we live in a world where we, we start with kind of like our armor first. Like this is a thing that will make you not reject me or not look down on me. But like the truth is we're all just people doing the best we can. And in my field, nobody gets into mental health and psychology if there isn't some really, you know, spicy stuff going on in their childhood and their world and their life. So um, I like to describe my family tree as a Christmas tree that is filled with ornaments that are primarily mental illness addiction, domestic violence, sexual abuse, lots and lots of trauma and dysfunction. So I was born to my mother and my father at a time when they were both really not okay. Neither one of them was okay for very different reasons and in very different ways. Um, But around the age of nine, my mom checked herself into a hospital and was like, I'm not okay. And I don't want to keep being not okay. And it was this like tremendous heroic act in my childhood because she got help and she started to turn the ship around. And I think that was, you know, the first trajectory of me ending up where I ended up, which is, um, knowing a lot of things about attachment (laughs) from there, there was therapy and there was, you know, trying to figure myself out. And then I went to graduate school and I went to graduate school a long time ago now. And back when I was in graduate school, no one was really talking about attachment in the like greater community, the psychological community. And I was that kid in every class that was like, um, how do you think this relates to attachment though? Because like it all does. Um, and now I think our culture is starting to get there. People are starting to recognize like, 
oh, wait a minute, like the way that we develop is relational. And the particularities of our relational development have a massive impact on how we see ourselves, how we relate to each other, the meaning we have in the world, all of that stuff. So anyway, so basically had a lot of messed up stuff, went to a lot of therapy, got a graduate degree. And then I've been practicing for 17 years and researching. And about a year and a half ago, I was like, people need to know this shit. So I started running my mouth on the internet and uh, it's been really fun. I've really loved it. (laughs) I really think it's like such an incredible place to offer information. And so almost 1 million followers later, which is so crazy. Well, I educate my brain cannot compute what that means. It's just like, is that like a full back? How many people you touch daily? Like it's amazing. It's you know really hard to understand, but I love it. I love it. And the people that are on my platforms are just genuine, authentically desiring to be whole people. And yeah. Um, and then I wrote a book, and I'm writing another book. So maybe not so basic. Maybe somewhere between basic and not basic. <laughs> it's all a pun or an irony or whatever. I it's love not, You're not basic at all. Because people think you're basic when they see you. Yes. But you're not. Totally. You're a badass bitch. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And we all are. And there's no single person, no matter what you've accomplished or not accomplished, who isn't that. It's like underneath you, there is an immeasurably interesting story. And that story tells us so much about where you are, what you're doing, what you've done, where you're going, who you love, all the things. So yeah. Yeah. And that's why we started this podcast. So to have amazing people (laughs) like you on it and share with all of our other baddies. It is so hard to believe that it's already February and the middle of it. But what has made my 2024 so much easier as a parent and entrepreneur is Green Chef the number one meal kit for eating well. In our quest to eat better and live cleaner, Green Chef has been our guiding star, making it wonderfully simple to enjoy nutritious meals that are good for the planet as well as our bodies. Green Chef is not just about meals. It's about experience and adventure in every box with options for every preferred eating style, whether it's keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or those just seeking balanced meals. Green Chef caters to every preference. But what really sets them apart? Their commitment to whole food for the whole body. We're talking about real wholesome ingredients that fuel not just our physical health, but our overall well-being. Our family dinners have transformed with Green Chef's gut and brain health meal plan. Imagine dishes that are not only delicious, but they also support your gut health and cognitive function. It's been a revelation seeing the whole family enjoy meals that are not just this, but scientifically designed to boost our health. But for me, the best part is how I get to incorporate my kids into the cooking process. Green Chef's step-by-step recipes are so user-friendly that my kids have become little chefs in their own right. They're learning about clean eating, organic ingredients, and the joy of cooking, all while we create lasting family memories in the kitchen. So I am so excited to share something with you. Green Chef is proudly part of the HelloFresh family, offering an even wider variety of meal plans. I love flipping between the two for an enriched dining experience, and guess what? 
you can too. Go to greenchef.com slash 60BBB and use my code 60BBB to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's right. Dive into the world of clean, delicious eating with Green Chef and enjoy a hearty discount on us. So what are you waiting for? Join us in this flavorful, healthful journey with Green Chef, where eating well is made simple, enjoyable, and absolutely delicious. So I know that there are three attachment styles, secure, anxious, and avoidant. I know what I am. And actually, it kind of changes situationally. But I would love for you, before Mm -hmm. we get into that, Mm -hmm. I would love for you to provide the listeners with just like a brief overview Mm -hmm. of those main attachment styles. Mm -hmm. What are they, the characteristics, um, and how do they tend to manifest in relationships? So I'm about to blow your mind because there are two sets of data, two places of research around attachment. One is social psychology and one is developmental psychology. And the developmental psychology has been around for longer, has more data, um, and studies the relationship dynamic as opposed to the Mm. person. So we're more interested in what is your attachment pattern within a particular relationship than we're interested in you becoming a type. And the social psychology is the one that says, anxious, avoidant, secure. The social psychology says that, and it actually doesn't correlate with the developmental psychology. And for me, I'm very loyal to developmental psychology. So I take, I have some beef with some of the ways the social psychology has claimed these three particular styles. And in particular, the way they talk about avoidant attachment really bothers me. And I'll tell you why in a little bit, but so it's not far off the mark, but it's off in ways that I think are significant for helping people heal their attachment stuff. So what we really have are three patterns and one category that is unpatterned. So we have secure, which is in childhood called secure and in adulthood called secure, which is very creative. And the secure pattern is um, I recognize that I have needs and I have no, no complexity around bringing my needs to other people. So I'm going to oversimplify all of this. I'm going to give you two little words for each style. So secure is when I am distressed or tender or in pain, I reach for my people and then I receive what they give me. So the the pattern of relating is moving towards proximity and closeness when I need it and then feeling soothed when I get it. Cool, right? It's like the best thing ever. The second category in childhood, we call it Am- anxious, ambivalent resistance. <laughs> Just to get real nerdy, anxious, ambivalent, or resistant. I actually like the, t- the term resistant the most because I think it's the most accurate and descriptive. Um, and it, in adulthood, we call it preoccupied. And this is the style that in the social psychology is often called anxious. But the reason I have a beef with that is that the other styles, the other insecure styles are anxious too. They're just handling their anxiety differently. They're not secure, right? They're anxious. So anyway, this style in childhood, there were caregivers who were unpredictable. So they were not available at a patterned predictability. I don't know if you're going to give me what I need when I'm upset or scared or tender. And so the child develops a hypervigilance. And in adult relationships, it looks like being preoccupied with your partner and not knowing how to feel secure with them. Um, I said secure was reach and receive. Preoccupied is reach and protest. 
We could also say reach and reject. So I'm going to, do you love me? Do you love me now? Do you love me now? But I don't like the way you said that, but I, but you only said it because I asked you to, but how come you weren't there at this time in this way? The, the brain has become so expectant of rejection that it's hard to take in security. It's hard to actually it's receive like it. seeking that constant uh, validation yes. that you're worthy or that yes. this person is going to give you what you need because yes. it's, it's not predictable. Yes. Got it. Yep. And so if that's been going on in your brain for years and years and years, you could come into adulthood and be with someone who's secure, but your brain still doesn't know how to receive yet. And so even if they are being predictable with you, even if you have a predictable partner, your brain is looking for the other shoe to drop and it's scanning and it's hypervigilantly scanning. So like maybe your partner's just bored one day and your brain's like, they're not bored. They're, they're into somebody else. I just know it. Mm. And so it's missing the marker of the present moment. Okay. Then the third style or pattern, relational pattern, um, is the avoidant. And so the avoidant pattern is I grow up in a home where there is no one who can meet my emotional tender needs. And maybe that was a parent who was really dismissive. Like I, feelings are for, you know, fairies. So we're not doing them. Or maybe it was a parent who was really emotionally dysregulated. So if, if I get upset and I show my parent that I'm upset, they're going to get more upset and that's going to make me feel worse. So why bother? And this is also called anxious avoidant in childhood and dismissive in adulthood. And what we know about these kids is they have the same cortisol responses to stressful situations. They just don't show it on the outside. And that's why I take some beef with the social psychology, because sometimes people talk about avoidantly attached folks as if they're less attached or they want less attachment. And it's not true. They've learned if I hide what I feel, I can stay closer longer. Because that's what was true in their childhood. So then when they're in adult relationships, it feels burdensome to share emotional material. And they don't want their partner to do it either because they're afraid that that will make the the relationship split. And they don't have that secure experience yet. Yeah, that makes sense. And you you mentioned in childhood. So what's the relationship there? Like, does it manifest in childhood your type? Although you say it's not a type forever, right? And you can have different experiences within different relationships. So you can have a really different attachment pattern with a a father or a mother or another gendered parent. And what's primary is the, the attachment figure that was your primary caregiver. The one you were with the most, the one you sought the most out, even if you barely sought anyone out, the one you sought the most that caregiver tends to have the biggest impact on your general pattern and on your on the way you view relationships. So in that way, I, I think there is something to be said for we all tend to have a leaning. I kind of think of it as like a default setting. It's like, well, this is kind of my default setting. My default setting growing up was ambivalent, resistant, and in my early adulthood was preoccupied. Um, my husband's default setting was avoidant, dismissive. Those are our default settings. But we have healed them. And over time, they're not that. And in my dating history, I dated people who were more ambivalent resistant than I was. And I became avoidant. I I mean, it was like, whoa, I'm doing the thing that I really hate other people doing. And so that's where I think it is complex. And in my book, I say, you know, people don't belong in boxes. So the goal isn't to say, what type are you? The goal is to go, what tends to be your default pattern? And if it 
doesn't lend itself towards a secure pattern, then what do you need to do in order to move into that security so that you mm. you get what's called a learned secure or an earned secure pattern of relating, which is now how I relate after all these years. Yeah, yeah I, I really appreciate that viewpoint because I definitely, as a child, say, oh, I am avoidant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then depending on the relationships, mm-hmm. uh, I was previously married, like it was definitely avoidant. Mm-hmm. And then with my new marriage, I think I was anxious at first, but now it's like secure mm-hmm. because we've been together for so long that evidence and action has showed me I'm that it's secure. I love And that. I've changed. It changes not just the way you relate, it changes your nervous system. Oh my God. You know, yes. I mean, it's really, it's so incredible how relational we are. The way you sleep. Yes. How you, Everything. how you handle other stressors in your life, right? Yes. I mean, if something's going wrong out in the world, outside of that relationship, there's something unbelievably protective about knowing, yo, there's a place I belong. There's a place where I'm held, seen, known totally. in my bigness and in my smallness, in my fabulous, badass bitchery, but also in the parts of me that feel... I'm unsure, right? That that there could be that, you know, true understanding. So the last uh, category, and I say category because it really is unpatterned, are folks that grew up in situations where their caregivers were a source of frightening terror. So if my caregiver is scary, it scrambles my attachment instinct because I'm supposed to run to this person when there's a saber-toothed tiger behind me. But if I have a saber tooth tiger behind me and I turn to run to my caregiver and they sure look like a grizzly bear. What am I supposed to do? And so this is considered disorganized and in adulthood is called unresolved. And I think this is maybe one of the most painful states a human being can experience, which is I'm not safe anywhere. And so I only have two ways to cope, which is I either have to disassociate and, and disconnect from my body and shut down and black out, or I have to blow up in some way, right? I have to get reactive in order to feel somewhat safe somehow. Is that rad? Are you explaining rad, like reactive yeah. attachment disorder? I, I have a, I have a little bit, I have, you know, apparently I have a lot of beefs, but I have a little bit of a beef with rad. I've worked with a lot okay. of adoptees over the years, and I think it's a really easy, easy label to give a child who isn't getting what they need in an attachment relationship. And I think that, yes, it is disorganized attachment that is there. And I guess I'm like, I don't think it's a disorder. I think it's a really proper response to an environment that was deeply scary and inadequate. And that, you know, labeling it, that puts it on the child instead of the environment. Yeah, that's valid. Yes. But yes, this is that, right? So I don't know how to be safe in the presence of attachment figures. And often kids who have that label will do better at school or do better in environments that aren't attachment oriented because mm-hmm. attachment is their Afghanistan. So this is where I'm, I've experienced random IEDs going off in the road. And so I don't know how to feel safe here, but I can go into a teacher environment and I can know that like, I don't have to, yeah. you know, bond with you. I just have to do my homework or I just have to follow the rules of the classroom or whatever. But yes. And I have a pet theory that this is the underlying um, etiology of all personality disorders. Yes, I agree with that for sure. Um, because what you're, it's, it's really, 
man, as I go through my own like healing journey through therapy, it's like everything is pointing back to the childhood. And I, I'm a firm believer of like, look, you can only blame your parents and other people for so long. You get to an age yes. where you say, okay, I'm 38. Yes, yeah. that's what I am. <laughs> I understand yes. that in that situation, that was really shitty. And me as a parent, I would never do that to my yes. child. But I am not going to look at you and be like, you fucked me up. You nope. know, like I totally like, I'm I I'm gonna own that once I get to a certain age, it's my responsibility to heal myself because yeah. it's myself. You um, aren't you aren't responsible for what happened to you. You are responsible to heal it. Yes. And what I'm finding is there is so much correlation and relationship to who we are today, to the type of caregiving or lack of caregiving that we received as children. It's mind blowing. It is. And that's why I nerd out on it all the time. And that's why I get like, <laughs> I get a little like butterfly in me when anyone like you wants to sit around and talk with me about it for an hour. I'm like, yeah. Oh, thank goodness. Because there's so much data that we have. We have longitudinal yeah. studies that show um, the Minnesota study of risk and ad- adaption is a great study to look at. It's, been, it's still going. It's a 36 year study looking at, Hey, how did what happened from zero to 18 months. And then at each stage of life, how did it affect the trajectories? And it's massive. The difference between kiddos who experience warm, responsive, attuned caregiving, and then the kiddos who experience erratic caregiving, like in the ambivalent resistant category, or cold or disconnected caregiving and avoidance or scary caregiving and disorganized. It's it's shaping the way that the template for everything. What do yeah. I, do I matter? Do my emotions matter? Are they real? Do um, other people see me and feel me and care about me? Right? Is it safe to be honest about the pain I'm in? Or is it not safe? Right? Like, whew. and then that that starts to form this template of what I believe about myself and other people and then how I relate. And then those patterns reinforce some of those beliefs. So I'm going to relate to people in a way that might push them away or, you know, might put me in a position where I'm never actually close to anyone, which reaffirms this truth in my body that there's no reason to reach out to people or I get scared and I get reactive and then people react back. And then I have the proof that they aren't safe. And so, oh, it's a lot. So it's interesting because like at what ages are our children impacted Mm-hmm. the most. Um, as a parent, a mom of four, I think about this more than I need to think about this. <laughs> because there's times when my kid's like upset and comes to my office door and is like, I need to talk to you. I'm like in the middle of a meeting and I'm like, I'm sorry, not right now. And then when she walks away and I'm like, was that it? Did I, am I, was that the did, moment? Was that? <laughs> or like, it's like 10 PM and they're like, ah, mm-hmm. I'm scared of the spirit eater. And I'm like, I'm sleeping. Like, yeah. and I'm like, was that it? Did yeah. I just fuck up my kid? Love this question. So, so okay, yeah, yeah. Just okay. Go ahead. I'm listening. So <laughs> we're all gonna take a deep breath because oh, this is such important material, but it's actually not super complicated. And and I wanna kind of give you an example. I want you to imagine that you're at work and you have a boss and you, your boss is getting like a bunch of phone calls while you're standing next to their desk and you need something from them. 
you can usually recognize like this, this is not a reality of this person not caring about me. And so then they hang up all of the phones and they look at you and they say, I am so sorry about that. What do you need? Right? There might've been a moment of annoyance or even panic while they're answering all these other phone calls, but you're also able to recognize the intention there is not about the relationship and the repair that happens afterwards is the most important piece. So we say the most significant, you know, protective factor in relationships is the rupture to repair cycle. So are you, I mean, I, I wish that I could say to you that I've never like yelled at my kids. I have absolutely yelled at my kids. I've gotten to that moment. It's almost always bedtime for me. I have one kid who's just sensory seeking and she's like doing back handsprings off my head while I'm trying to lay next to her. And like, there's just this point where I'm like, enough. Right. And like that yelling comes out and it never works the way I want it to work. I never feel good about it, but I do it. Um, but that's not damaging her. And I feel very confident about that. What would damage her is if I was being threatening in that moment, if I was, um, doing it at such a regularity that she didn't feel like I understood what she was going through. And as soon as I say, I usually leave the room and say, mommy needs to calm her body down. And I go and I call my body down and I come back and I come back in a state where I'm like, Hey, sweet pea, I know that you were not trying to hurt mommy. It just, it really hurt when your knee flew into my eye. And I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry that I reacted. My reaction was not your fault. I love you. Would you like to snuggle now? You know, and there's that repair process. So, um, there's a research through Edtronic. He did something called the still face experiment, which I'm not going to go all the way into, but Basically, he also did longitudinal research that showed um, that the mothers, the mothers in particular, because research is always done on the mothers, but we know that this applies to any caregiver, but mothers who were deeply warm and attuned and children who experienced secure attachment from that, the, the percentage of time that a mother was attuned and responsive was 30%. Oh, so okay. I'm doing good. Totally. <laughs> Totally. I'm, I'm like, I'm like at like 80%. And I'm amazing. like, am I, am I fucking yeah. up everything at that 20% that I'm like, no. not the best mom? You're not. You're not. And you're not because here's what's fucking kids up. The mindset in a parent that says, you better be good for me. And if you're not good for me, you're going to get it. Yeah. Or yeah. um, you better take care of me. Cause I'm fragile and I need you to take care of me. And you're the only one who loves me. That's enough. Yeah. I need you to think about me all the time. You should feel guilty when you don't think about me all the time. I want to dive into something that's truly spiced up our family life and my personal growth journey, learning a new language with Babbel. As the world becomes more connected, understanding another language feels more like a necessity than a luxury. And for someone who's always on the go, Babbel has been a perfect fit. Imagine immersing yourself in a new culture, all from the comfort of your home. Babbel, the science-packed language learning app, has made this possible for me and millions of others. With over 16 million subscriptions sold, it's clear I'm not alone in this journey. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons designed by more than 200 language experts have started helping me speak a new language in just three weeks. It's all about real conversations, real people, and real progress. And I love involving my kids in the learning process. It's been incredibly rewarding. With Babbel, it's so easy for them to jump in and help me practice ordering food, asking for directions, or just having a simple chat in a new language. 
The app's conversation-based technique, coupled with its advanced speech recognition, has made learning not just effective, but a fun family activity. Research supports Babbel's effectiveness, with studies showing that 15 hours on Babbel equals a semester of college language classes. That's an impressive feat. Now, for all of you dedicated listeners out there, I've got a special treat. You can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only if you use our listener-exclusive link. Head over to babbel.com slash bbb, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bbb to unlock this incredible offer to get 50% off a lifetime of language learning. Babbel is not just about learning. It's about transforming how you interact with the world. With lessons developed by over 200 linguists and access to over 13,000 hours of learning content, Babbel is ready to guide you on the language journey you're looking for. So whether you prefer self-study, podcasts, or live classes, Babbel has something for everyone at any time of the day, making it a perfect companion for your busy life. So join me and let's embrace the adventure of learning a new language with Babbel. Yeah, I feel you. Here's a great question. Okay. Okay, it's related to this. What does a parent do when you're divorced and you are sharing custody and one parent is a secure, gives secure attachment and the other one does shit like that? What do you do? This is one of the most common questions that I get. And so I'm going to give the reassurance first and then I'm going to give a couple of little tips. So the reassurance is this. The most protective factor around attachment is at least one caregiver who is able to offer that secure base and safe haven. Those are the words we use in the research. So the safe haven is I'm here when you're tender and I know how to receive you, hold you. And the secure base is I operate now as a sense of confidence for you to bounce off of and go out into the world and experience other relationships and other, you know, adventures. So if, if we have one parent who's doing that and another parent who isn't, we tend to develop the healthier brain strategy and we are and then process the unhealthy parent through the healthy parent. Got it. And I would say, you know, follow the lead of your child. So if they're saying like, you know, I hear this question from women more than men, so I'm going to gender it in that way. But so if they're saying daddy is, um, you know, told me that I looked like a slut today. I mean, I wish that wasn't something I heard often. Um, You know, daddy thinks I shouldn't wear crop tops, daddy, daddy, daddy. And they're coming to you. You know, your job as a parent is to stay with them. Like, Oh, how did that feel? I must've felt terrible. Like, what do you want to do? What, how do you want to respond? Do you want my help in responding? Do you want to respond? Here are your options. Um, this is how I would feel if someone said that to me. And these are some things I might do. Um, and here's some psychoeducation on the use of the word slut against women. Um, right. Or like, Here's some education around whose responsibility it is to be safe around sexuality. Um, you're containing that experience for them. You're showing them you can handle it. Um, you're not demonizing the other parent because that doesn't help because they, right. they come from that other parent. And so if my other parent is a terrible monster, well, half of me is terrible and monstrous. So now yeah. Michelle Dempsey um, is an Instagram creator who wrote a book called Moms Moving On. And her mm. 
if you, I think her Instagram handle is like the Michelle Dempsey. She gives out immeasurably wise wisdom in this particularity. She talked mm-hmm. all she does is talk about like how to deal with parenting in the context of a, of a high conflict divorce. So follow her mm-hmm. if you're in that situation. She'll help inspire you. You know, she'll help you get there. She just did a post yesterday that was like, should I tell my children my, my ex cheated on me? And she was like, mm. no. Why are you telling them that? Why? And and that cheating no. is this thing we we say about cheating on tests and cheating the government or cheating like it's a terrible thing to do. And that's putting them in the position to yeah. have to then feel that their parent is amoral. It's not their story to hold. It's your story to hold. Totally. You need witnesses, but it's not your children. Your children should not be your witnesses. Right. I mean, my um, one, I come from a family where that was my reality, where my mom would say awful things about my dad Mm. to me and say all those things. And it was really hard. And then I'm in a high conflict divorce. I'm divorced now, but it's still just ongoingly high conflict all the time. Um, But when my kids come to me, like, let's just say in a scenario where they say stuff or they come to me, I always, um, very similar to what you recommended, say, well, what was your experience? Mm. What do you remember? How mm-hmm. did you feel? And Love I don't it. give my opinion about anything because mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to try to manipulate you or twist you or make you question to come to me next time. Yeah. I'm just going to ask you questions about you and you figuring it out. Um, the You're, only yeah. thing mm-hmm. that I'll say is in times where your children are in danger. A great example, let's say your um, ex or whoever is an addict and they've relapsed and yes. they're actively using yes. and yes. your kids have no idea and you find out, that's when you tell your children. Yes. Because if the onus is on them to figure to it know out, when something is not right, Mm-hmm. Then the, you ha- then your ex has opened the door mm-hmm. for you to tell your children that. In my opinion, I agree. And- I agree, actually, a hundred percent. And I think stating the facts is different than putting a spin on the facts. So, um, you know, your other parent um, is drinking again, and I know that because right. X, Y, or Z. I saw them drink. So and so saw them drink. Um, this is something that makes me uncomfortable. And this is why you won't be going over to their house again until we have a conversation. I hope they will stop drinking. I hope they will get better, right? It is not your other parent is obviously cares more about the bottle than they care about being a parent. Right. Don't say that shit. Nope. That's that's about you. That's about your own anger and your own resentment. And that belongs with other adults and other people in your life who can witness you. It doesn't belong to your children. But I also, I think that's an interesting line though. Do you need to protect the other parent? No, but do you need to protect your child? Yes. So it's like, how, what is, what do they need to know? Yeah. Yeah. How do these attachment scenarios um, stick with us for like the rest of our lives? And, and, and Mm -hmm. also like, I'm super curious, like, is it possible to have an attachment style in your relationship with your own self? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, let's start with that and then we'll work our way backwards. So yes, attachment affects our self-development. So if I'm Mm. relating to a caregiver and every time I make a mistake, my caregiver says, what the hell's wrong with you? That becomes my inner voice. That is the template for how I relate to myself. Um, if I have a caregiver who's very uncomfortable with emotions and just pretends they aren't happening and cleans the dishes and says like, do you want a lollipop? And should we do something else? 
that affects how I feel about the parts of myself that are messier and more emotional. And what I feel is like, these are things that should be like zipped up, you know, zip it, lock it, put it in your pocket. That's my, th- one of my three-year-old's favorite phrases. I don't know where they learned it, but I they've all of it. That. Zip it, lock that. it, put it in your pocket. But yeah, Wait, I mean, is it that? That's Polly Pocket. Oh, is right? it? I don't know. Maybe it's Polly Pocket. Okay, that's think. funny. I, I should be watching more shows with them, but really I'm like, is this violent or terribly? I didn't know that was still a thing. But anyway, I, I love that. I'm stealing that. I'm pretty sure it's Polly Pocket. I love it. Maybe it's not. I love it. <laughs> so anyway, so I think, yes, like um, our, our self develops in the context of others. So we, we start as a we, you know, infants have no concept of their self outside of connection and relationship. Then when we get to be about toddlers, preschool, you know, we've come to much more of a sense of me, mine. That's why there's a lot of selfishness. I put in quotation marks is because they're developing a self. They went from we-ish to selfish. And then in a healthy development, we learned how to be in the state of interdependence. We are selfish and other-ish simultaneously. I exist, you exist we exist. Um, in insecure experiences, we tend to lean sort of one way or the other. We can develop sort of extreme selfishness as a form of survival and, or we can adapt into an extreme other ishness as a form of survival. And both of those paths, they take a lot of healing to get back into that space where you can be sort of in between me-ish and you-ish and us-ish. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how does it affect us across our lifespan? I mean, it's very nuanced. The people that we get close to outside of our family affect that. So if you have a fairly secure experience in childhood, but you ended up in some really toxic, abusive relationships, it will shift some of your attachment patterns to being more insecure. That happens. And vice versa, you know, you find that sweetheart like you found and I found. And then there's this like deep sense of like, oh, the world is different. My body is different. My needs are different. It's like, I, it's okay. You know, um, what the reason I wrote the book I wrote. So the book I wrote is called securely attached, transform your attachment patterns into loving, lasting romantic relationships. And it's not just for romance because not everybody picks their romantic partner to be their primary attachment figure. But, um, book publishers are like, you have to pick a lane. So that's the title, but the book itself, (laughs) the book itself is really, it's every person, every adult person's guide to understanding your childhood and then the ways that it affected you, what the patterns are, and being able to contrast the insecure patterns to the secure pattern and how you can, over time, develop that secure pattern. So there's three sections. Section one is like, what happened in your childhood and how did it impact you? Section two is what happened in your adulthood as a result of what happened in your childhood. And how can you process and grieve that? And then section three is here is what it looks like to be a securely attached person. Here is what it looks like to identify other people who can offer you what you need. Um, I'm not a fan of being like, you should look for someone who's secure, not insecure, because I, I don't actually think that it works like that. What we, does that even mean? Well, we, <laughs> you know, we tend to find people that are well well matched for where we are. So it's more about, can you Mm. put in the work to heal some of those places of, of pain that are from the past so that you're freed up in the present to just choose what you want? Like, who do you desire? Who lights you up? Who do you feel safe with? And to say, yeah, this doesn't feel good to dynamics that don't feel that way. Yeah. That kind of is a, a leading me into a question of like, 
And I see, I hear you. Like, don't just go try to find the secure person. Uh-huh. Well, one, because your attachment style can change. So mm-hmm. they might be secure, seemingly secure. And then when they're with you, they're anxious because you're doing shit that's making feel them <laughs> feel that way, right? Like, totally. I don't know. Totally, totally. But what I would love to know is like, what, how does it appear? Like, how does someone who is in a who is a secure a mm-hmm. generally a secure attachment style like how does that come off because mm-hmm. i think sometimes we confuse that with secure and insecure where mm-hmm. it's like wow she just radiates confidence yes. she must be secure it's like mm, no probably not <laughs> well, and i always have radiated confidence i radiated confidence Same. that from the moment i came out of the womb my 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 actually my dad talks about how he thinks that it affected how he parented me because he was like, you just always seem like you knew what you're doing. And I was like, well, yeah, cause I, I, I am that way, but also cause I had to be like, I needed you yeah. all to help me develop my tender communication around all that. And for it to feel yeah. okay to be all this. Anyway, all that to be said, it is not about, I look, I exude confidence. It is about what do I do in moments of tenderness and distress? So do I, when I feel pain and insecurity reach for other people. And when I reach for them and I say, Hey, I'm having a really hard time. This is what happened. This is the script in my head. Do I then allow them to offer me comfort? And when they offer me comfort, do I go, okay. And I, I think of it as like grabbing hold of the life raft. It's like when we're out to sea, cause we all get out to sea. life is vulnerable. So we're out to sea. Do we call for help or do we just keep trying to swim? Right? Yeah. And when we call for help and someone says, here's a life raft, do we grab it or do we just kind of keep flopping and say, like, I thought it was going to be pink? <laughs> like, I don't, you know, right? Like what? Yeah. So we're, we're looking at, and then, and then what do we do when other people are out to see? So if someone yeah. is saying, hey, I'm having a hard time, do we go, well, you know, you're looking at it all wrong. And dismiss their emotional world, or do we say like, "Oh, I'm so sorry that you're going through that. I feel it. I can tell it hurts. I'm here. What do you need?" Right? Or do we go, yeah. oh, "Oh my gosh! I mean, are you gonna be okay? I mean, are you gonna like something like that?" <laughs> like, no, no, no. It's like I can stay grounded and calm, but also empathetic with you. Yeah, I can I'm recognizing, hearing, appreciating, and just listening. Um, there's a really good book mm-hmm. called The Rabbit Listens. I love it. I have it. We read it like every day. It's so good. Yep. I mean, as an adult, go get that book for yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you want to share a little bit about what it says? Yeah. Oh, because my kids love it. It's ultimately this little boy is building something and he's working really hard on it and he thinks it's a masterpiece and then something happens and it falls and it breaks. And all of these animals are coming in and I don't remember exactly, but like one animal's like, that's okay. I'll help you build it all back up. Come on. And he's like, no, go away. And he's like, um, one's like, well, you know, like it, it's not that bad, mm-hmm. you know, like let's just leave and go somewhere else. And he's like, no, just go away. And all these animals have different things. They try to use humor. They try to use anger, but all of those examples are misattuned. They aren't about receiving what, where, where he's at and offering empathy right. and attunement. And then, and then, then the rabbit just the listens. Rabbit yeah. The rabbit comes and just hops and doesn't say anything. Yeah. Comes up to him, snuggles. Yeah. 
It's just like rubbing his head. And I'm like, when I read it the first time, I'm like crying. And I'm like, that's it. Don't it. Like, it was, it's such a cute book. And but it's God, about attachment. It, that is about attachment. So, it is. I mean, like words we use when we're, we're in the research is, you know, proximity seeking, right? Yeah. Prox, uh, proximity maintenance. How, how is someone maintaining proximity to someone else while they are calming and soothing? How we, even the words we use to describe relationships are attachment words. Are you close to that person? Like, what does that mean? It literally means like physically close to them and the power of being with the withness. I like to say that inner uh, understanding is an intervention. We live in a world Mm. that sees only fixing as intervention, but understanding is an intervention. Like most of the time, I actually went through something really awful last night. That's not totally mine to share with um, someone I love dearly. And this morning I called, I reached for my people. I reached for my husband. Then I reached for a few friends to kind of go through over what happened. And um, what I needed most of all was them to see me, you know, to understand what I went through. And, you know, they're not just how I see what I went through, but sometimes it's adding to that. They're like, Oh, well that must this and then that. And you went this. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. That was awful and scary and whatever. And then, I don't know, I think just be with each other, like in, in that romantic relationship, in that parent relationship, in any attachment relationship, um, that your person relationship, your BFF, who's your person relationship, that's an attachment relationship. It's like, be responsive, be highly responsive, especially to the, the big celebrations and the big feelings. You know, yeah. they call you to tell you they got a job promotion, like light the fuck up, light up, Yeah, you know, enjoy. Yeah. Or they call you to tell you they lost their job, like lean in with care and empathy and understanding. Even if it makes you uncomfortable because you don't like seeing them suffer, don't leave them to the suffering alone. Be with them in that. Yeah. What steps can we take to rectify and improve friendships? Mm-hmm. Um, when we have, you know, different attachment dynamics, mm-hmm. um, like what can we do? Well, I think if you're looking through those kind of rubrics of, do I reach and receive? Am I secure? Do I reach and then protest? Am I more preoccupied? Do I avoid and distract? Am I avoidant? Or do I shut down and blow up? I've got some disorganization. So where am I generally in this relationship? And take some ownership over that. There's such power in just yeah. acknowledging it. Like, oh, hey, I, I really get hypervigilant around you. And I don't, I don't like relax around the things you do offer me. Um, so I'm going to work on that. I'm going to start like a honey journal. And every time you give me some honey, I'm going to write about it so that I, mm. I'm not constantly seeking for more honey. I describe that pattern as the honey badger, yeah. you know, like. I need more honey. I need more honey. I need more honey. But like, wait, no, actually you need to like stop, sit, eat some honey, let it in, let it nourish you. Taste it. Yes. Know that it's real. Trust that the universe will bring more when you need it. Um, And then I call the avoidant style, the turtle. It's like, I just, I've got tender parts. I just put them all inside when there's any kind of emotional complexity. Um, Yeah. And the secure is the koala. Like I just hold on to my a person when I need them. And we just sort of go chill for the ride after that. Um, and then the disorganized, I call them baby dragons because they're really tender and it's obvious why they're so tender, but also they can really blow some fire out. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. So this is maybe more of a personal question, but I'm sh- I'm hoping that listeners can relate. <laughs> About a year ago, I realized that my like core intimate group, mm-hmm. um, when I was really diving into my attachment style, because I've done a lot of work, I feel like I'm just more secure in yes. general. Um, and I started to look around my core intimate group and I had found that my closest friends are all avoidant mm-hmm. attachment styles. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys and knew that, how to maintain proximity in a similar way. So, yeah. so the, the ambivalent resistant groups tend to also group together because they maintain mm-hmm. proximity similarly. I'm clinging to you. I'm getting anxious with you. I get that. And you all know like, Hey, I'm not, I'm going to zip it, lock it, put it in my pocket and you are too. And we all care about each other a lot. Yeah. But we're going to be really in kind of awkwardly careful around tender emotional yes. top, topics and subjects. Yes. And we are. And we were. And we had been friends for like five to six years. And then maybe a year ago, I just had this realization. And someone gave me advice because I was like, because oh, I, I was very avoidant mm-hmm. um, and been coming more secure over the couple of years. But um Something that someone said to because I'm like a planner. I'm super extroverted. I'm mm. always the one organizing and planning and having. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I was doing everything mm. for all of these core for my core friends. And someone came to me and was like, "Just stop, stop for three months and see if anyone in your group reaches out to you." Uh-huh. And I'm like, "Okay." And then nothing. Yeah. And I was just like, "What the heck?" And then six months, and now nine months. And so I'm curious. Like, I have done a lot of work to put myself into the more secure bucket. And of course, I still take and borrow from other things. Yes. I'm not perfect. Yes. I have problems, but I'm now looking at my friend group and I'm like, we're so different. Mm-hmm. What do I do? How do I, man, I put in so much time and effort into this group. And it's like, how do I now yeah. find people who are more secure and more, mm-hmm. you know, they they reach and they get and then... Uh, and then they reach and I get, you know, like, yes. how do I find more people like this? It's yeah. hard. It is actually very hard to find that. And I, I think I say this a lot to myself, but also to my clients that friendships are designed for seasons often in our lives. Yeah. And so I think recognizing and accepting where people are, you know, that they, if they aren't jumping on this journey, um, I mean, I think if you have one of those like inklings that this is a group of people or one or two of these people or one of these people has the capacity and wants to be in a different spot, you know, there might be a direct conversation where you say, hey, I've really been working on being more authentic about all of the indoor stuff and not just showing everyone my outdoor stuff. And I think you might want to do that too, but I'm not sure. And I'm sort of like putting myself on a limb here that like, maybe could we talk more honestly about what's hard in our lives together? Um, And I think you could do that with the group too. Like I think, but uh, it might be that it lands with some and not with others and it really shifts the group, but you're shifting the group by growing. And that's just the reality. When we grow, we lose. (laughs) It's something that doesn't get talked about in self-help a lot, but it's just real because you outgrow and that's hard and sad but it also leaves room and space. So I would say there are a lot of people out there who do have this. In fact, statistically 50%, 50% of people have a secure pattern. So there are a lot of people 
right? I know. And it doesn't awesome. feel like that because you really can't tell. It doesn't. <laughs> you really can't fully tell it in a close relationship with someone. So that's such a good point because I think my thing that I struggle with, and I think one, definitely the affluent area that I live in, a mm, lot of people either yes. come from money or have money, yep. which is, it is what it is. Well, and also it's really, I am very vulnerable. Like you go on to my Instagram, man, do I, and my podcast, I talk about all sorts of stuff. Like <laughs> I am, I'm like, this is me, bitches. Like <laughs> I am who I am. But a lot of the people that I have known for five years had conversations with, it's like this level mm. of vulnerability where it's like, what vacation homes are you going to? And uh-huh. I'm like, even if I open up and be vulnerable, it's like nothing Crickets. is returned. And so it's, what do you do? How, what's your advice to people that, to test the waters? Because it's like sometimes as a mom, and I'm sure it does, it's not just my area. I'm sure it's a lot of areas where moms feel this competition or this uncertainty to be vulnerable and let somebody in because you're scared. Um, but then you just like only talk this surface level conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think it's about how much BS you can put up with. So I have a yeah. very low BS threshold at this point in my life. And I also, <sighs> I, I live in communities that I have that kind of dynamic and I, I just, I don't go to the Botox party and I don't go to the like, you know, event where I think this is not going to be, these aren't going to be genuine conversations about being people who are learning and growing and supporting each other and cheering each other on. And this is like pretend community around being female. Like this isn't really like, Hey, I'm behind you. What do you need? What do I need? How do we love each other? Like radically in a world that was very disinterested in us progressing, right? Like I don't know. I, I guess I would say like, ask yourself the question, like, what do I want? You know, the Mary yeah. Oliver quote, what will you do with this one wild, precious life? Mm. What will you do with it? And is it going to be spent in small talk? And, and I, I say that to say, I have friends who actually love small talk and I don't judge that. That's not a moral problem. I, one of my closest friends, she's a crack up. She's one of the most extroverted people I know, but she just wants to meet new people all the time. And she loves to yeah. know like, what's your position and where'd you go on vacation? And it's not about status. She just loves that. And she, it's hilarious. Um, And I would rather poke my eye out. Like, I don't (laughs) want to do that. I want to do this. I want to engage around ideas and truth and be vulnerable. Um, So I think there's a period of time where you have to embrace some loneliness as you're kind of waiting for your people. Like, who are my people? Um, And also recognizing you probably have a handful of those people. So like, what can you be doing to like invest more in those relationships? Because the other thing about attachment is we do tend to like, if we grew up in an insecure attachment, we tend to place more value and time in trying to mend our insecure relationships than we do in trying to build our secure relationships. 100%. So like, look at those people and just start building and, and, and do some grief. There's probably some grief around that group where you're like, Oh, thought these were my people, people. And the more I'm growing, I'm recognizing that they're people I care about, but they're probably more playmates than they are like soul journeyers for me. And so I'm going to yeah. still get together with them for that one weekend and wherever every year. Cause that's so fun and that's great, but I'm not going to look to them to be a place where I'm deeply known and understood. I'm going to get that met by these other people that can do that and do do that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's such great advice. It's like, wake up and look and listen. Who are the people who have come up and supported you or asked you or checked in on you and then pour that energy into them instead of like, how do I fix this? Um, Such a good call out. This is a very simple way to think of this, but I'm like, who can you call it to in the morning when your family's in a crisis? Mm, Are you investing more in those people than you are in the people that you think might not like you because you said that one political comment you think they might not agree with? Like, that's an insecure pattern. That's a time to turn around and go, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop pouring my energy into the relationships that feel disconnected. And I'm going to pour my energy into the relationships that feel connected. Yeah. Let's talk about family, right? Because there's relationships, there's friendships and all of that. Something that I've personally noticed is I've, the years that I've been working to change my attachment style, I've lost um, connection with one of my siblings because they're, yeah, it happens, but they're just so uncomfortable. I just felt your default avoidance right there. Well, the, the reality is, is like I grew up um, with the expectation that I have no boundaries, Mm -hmm. I'm the bigger person and Mm -hmm. I fix it all to make it work. Mm -hmm. And I, once I set the boundaries of this is not what I'm going to do anymore, that person did not like it. Mm. And so that's why I say it happens because that's what happens when you set boundaries. That's right. And and you, and, and it sounds like it didn't, really create a tremendous loss. It created a, it didn't, it 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 created a situation that from the outside can look like a tremendous loss, but for you, it wasn't, it wasn't actually a relationship that brought value to your life. No, it, right. I would be very sad if that was the case, but it was an energy drainer, um, a constant energy drainer. And Mm. so I did a lot of my work and I set my boundaries and I changed my um, attachment style to be more Mm -hmm. secure, Mm -hmm. but because of those things, Mm -hmm that individual did not like it Mm -hmm. and I was not going to budge. And so we've disconnected a lot. And that's why I say it is what it is. But this is a common thing that's going to happen. And I think a lot of people, when I say sibling, they're like, but that's your, Mm. that's your sibling. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay. Right. Like I'm, my door is always open for this person. If they come back and they want to remend and figure this out, so Always. I want to go back to Edtronic's, you know, work in connection with yeah. Winnicott's work of the idea of the good enough mother. Um, our attachment relationships have an incredible flexibility. And so not mm. only from parent to child dynamic, but from sibling to sibling, partner to partner, we only need to be a good enough in all of those things. And so when people are yeah. estranged, it is generally because that relationship was not just imperfect. It was inadequate in the, in the ways yeah. you needed it to be. And so I, I would say, find, get online. There's a lot of people online who talk about estrangement, like find other people who've done that and recognize like, yes, this is common. And it's not me abandoning someone. I always say you can't abandon some, an adult unless they are in the throes, actively in the throes of death. Right. Right. Period. Um, so you're not abandoning them. You're, you're drawing boundaries. And I would say, you know, my guess is based on the way you're describing it, it sounds like the sibling has some pretty significant, um, probably disorganization of some kind, like their expectation that you should give them what they want when they want it, how they want it. And if you don't, that they're entitled to punish you. 
that's an abusive mindset. Yep. And that mm-hmm. comes from disorganized attachment. Well, here's another weird, here's another question. I'm just like opening up another topic. But the question is, why do some people grow up in abusive households and not absorb the abusive mentality or yeah. absorb it inwardly towards themselves, but not towards others? Um, and that is a question I can't answer. <laughs> We don't know. I think about this too, because I'm one of five Mm -hmm. and we're all a year and a half, two years apart. And we're all so drastically, drastically different Mm -hmm. in every way possible. Yes. And there's a genetic component and then maybe like a, and then there's some maybe like spiritual component or something else. Environmental. All of the things. We don't know. Although I will say this, like my siblings, uh, there's four of us. Mm -hmm that all had very, very similar things. And I'm the only one that really spent significant time in therapy to undo that mess. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I view myself as different. Mm -hmm. And then my oldest, the oldest who, who's not like, like, uh, wasn't really like us was just so, was so much older when all that stuff happened. And then she went off to like a private, Mm. private school. So she didn't really have that Mm. day to day trauma constantly. So I also say no two kids grow up in the same household because how you experience the household and what the dynamic is, like what your, your genetic temperament is and how that is responded to is different. Um, so yeah, I think, I don't know. I've, I've had periods of estrangement with several of my family members and then I've had reunion and that reunion has come at, at the right time in the right way that for where it felt like that person had accepted a boundary over time or, yeah. Um, I had also healed in a way that I no longer, you know, needed was, I was able to be in proximity of them without needing to be understood in a certain way, um, yeah. and handle it. And they handled it and there were shifts around that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of chosen family and sometimes your chosen family is mm. your biological family and sometimes they aren't. And you want to be thoughtful. This goes back to what you're talking about with friends. We want to be thoughtful about who yeah. we are spending a significant amount of energy and time connecting with because that's affecting our brain. It's affecting how we're functioning and working in the world. And not everyone has that privilege or that choice. Some people are stuck in situations. I want to honor that. But I think if you have a choice, I hope you will offer yourself the kindness of moving towards the warmth, move where it's warm. Where are people receptive, kind, attuned, compassionate, hang out with them. And they may not create that same active sense of like, I've got to make this okay with them. I want to be with them as someone who's unkind to you, but just override that. Override it. My, um, a, uh, marriage counselor at one point did this exercise with me and my ex. And that was the moment I realized we were done. Mm -hmm. Um, and that this wasn't healthy was, I don't know. I think this has to do with attachment styles, mm. but he put me at one side of the room mm-hmm. and my ex um, at the door and said, okay, take one step closer, take one step closer, mm-hmm. take one step closer. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and was like, really feel the feeling that you feel. Mm-hmm. And as he got up to my face, the the therapist was like, how do you feel? And I'm like, like, I'm a like a fire that is about to burst. Mm-hmm. Like I'm on fire from my toes to my head every part of me Mm. is just sweating and hot Mm. and then he was like okay now you know uh walk away and leave and when he left and closed the door he's like how do you feel and i'm like at peace Mm. and 
then we reversed it. And it was like, as I was walking towards him, he felt better, more secure, more whatever. And I just was like, this is not going to work. And I, I, I did the same activity with my husband. And as he was getting closer to me, it was like, I wanted to embrace him. I felt relaxed and peaceful and it was the same vice versa. And I think that has to do with like attachment in in the sense of like, okay, yeah. I mean, it was such a cool experiment. It's that qualitative presence of someone else. And what's the cumulative effect of our experience in their presence? Is it being seen, understood? Is it being mocked? Is it being consumed? You know, I've been with people who I would describe their relationship to me as wanting to devour me, just wanting every single thing about me all the time Mm -hmm. in a way that felt yucky right? Like what is the cumulative effect of your presence? And that's why it's so important that we are being thoughtful about how we show up with the people we love, you know, and that we don't live in distractedness, which is very easy to do in the modern age, um, that we show up and that we're warm and that we're thoughtful and silly and goofy when, when there's an opportunity (laughs) to do, you know, one of my favorite (laughs) developmental psychologists says families that play together, stay together. And I think couples that play together, stay together. And it's not like, Hey, so we need to go skiing on the weekend. Like, no, like it's those little moments. I have this memory I want to share that I think is so bonding with my husband where we're in the kitchen one day and he realizes that there's like a, a little rip in one of the buttons in his shirt. And he looks at me and he just gets this impish grin and he just rips his shirt open and buttons fly everywhere in the kitchen. And he is, uh, he, I don't know what yeah. it was. He, that's not him. He's not, he's not, a sh- I am totally a center of the stage person. He is not. And he just doesn't. And, but it was like, there was this subtle nuance and we laughed so hard. I peed my pants. I mean, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> I could not stop laughing. I didn't all the way pee my pants, but there was definitely a piece expression yeah. because it was like, you know, but I think like, man, that just made me love him. More, yeah. Right. Like, and I can tell thousands of stories like that of just how many times we love that just lost our nuts about something silly, you know, or like, I don't know, we have a joke about our cat. She'll like make this mad face. Her name is Mink. And at some point, I don't remember why, but I was like, Mink make mad. And then like, that is like this thing. And so anytime now one of us is upset, we break the ice. I'll go, Mink make mad. You know, and it's like, I don't know. So allowing that playfulness. Yeah. Warmth, playfulness, presence, attunement. And imperfectly so. And then repairing when you're off. Because we all get off a lot. I cannot believe we've been talking for an hour. Um, I hope y'all are still here uh, because I would love for you to share your resources <laughs> or tools that you have. Like, where can people find you? How do they further explore attachment styles? Give yeah. us all the details. Yes. Okay, great. Well, I'd say, I mean, based on this conversation, the number one thing you should do is go order my book, Securely Attached. You can order it anywhere. It's on Amazon. It's on Books A Million. It's on Powell's Books. It's on all the things. It's through Penguin Random House. So if you just Google Securely Attached, it'll, their website will pop up and all of the buying options will be there. Um, because I think, I really believe every person needs to do this work. So that's like part one. I have online courses and classes that are specifically yeah. parent-oriented. We, I will be coming out with some couple stuff, but that's probably in January. But so you can go to attachmentnerd.com and there's a membership option, an a la carte option. There's all sorts of stuff there. 
Um, and then I also have a team of therapists and coaches. So if you're like, I just need a guide, I need someone, then go to attachmentlabs.com. And we have an intake coordinator who will figure out like, who's your person and how do we make this work? And we'll get you someone to help you figure out how to get more secure and make your relationships more secure. And I don't know, at the end of the day, is there anything that matters more than the love we have with our closest people? I don't think so. It's everything. If you could have anyone listening, get one piece of advice from today's episode, what would it be? Mm. No matter how you were loved growing up, you always deserved to be loved deeply and fully. And so no matter where you are in your journey at this point in time, it is never too late for a U-turn. You can move towards the warm, loving people that you notice in your environment and soak that up and it will change how you feel about you. And and it will always be something you deserve. Always. That's great advice. I'm going to go cry now because that hit really hard. (laughs) I'm just kidding. kidding. I love that. Thank you so much. Seriously, I could do a whole nother hour episode with you, but I so appreciate it. I think it's really valuable and I appreciate your time. So lovely to be with you. Thank you for what you're doing. As always, thank you for listening. Check us out on Instagram at Badass Basic Bitch. And thank you to Saw and Sign, our production studio. We'll see you next week. Thank you.